Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Hash It Out. My name is Deborah, and today I am joined by my fellow co-hosts, Janae and Chelsea. April Sexual Assault Awareness Month, so today's topic will be about sexual assault. And just to add a trigger warning, we will be discussing topics such as rape culture and abuse in the LGBTQ community and other related topics. Um, but we'll go ahead and start by laying some foundation for the episode by clearly defining the term sexual assault and making some important distinctions. So according to RAIN, or Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, which is the nation's largest anti-sexual violence organization, the term sexual assault refers to sexual contact or behavior that occurs without explicit consent of the victim. Some forms of sexual assault include attempted rape, fondling or unwanted sexual touching, forcing a victim to perform sexual acts, and penetration of the victim's body, also known as rape. An important distinction that Rain makes is that rape is a form of sexual assault, but not all sexual assault is rape. Additionally, Rain emphasizes that when it comes to force, force doesn't always refer to physical pressure. Perpetrators may use emotional coercion, psychological force, or manipulation to coerce a victim into non-consexual sex. Some perpetrators will use threats to force a victim to comply, such as threatening to hurt the victim or their family or other intimidation tactics. So I want to talk about how men can be victims of sexual assault as well. So let's start by saying that sexual assault can happen to anyone, no matter your age, sexual orientation, or gender identity. Same goes for perpetrators. They can be any gender identity, any age, and they can have any relationship to the victim. That being said, men and boys who have been sexually assaulted or abused may have many of the same feelings and reactions as other survivors of sexual assault, but they may also face some additional challenges because of social attitudes and stereotypes about men and masculinity. Oftentimes, men who have survived sexual assault as adults feel shame or self-doubt believing that they should have been strong enough to fight off the perpetrator. Um, and I'm really glad that you brought up the fact that same goes for perpetrators. Like they can be any gender identity, sexual orientation or age. Um, because I think oftentimes when we talk about men and sexual assault, we automatically assume men who have been sexually assaulted or sexually abused have been sexually assaulted or sexually abused by other men. Um, but that could never, the perpetrator could never be a female. Um, and I think that just goes to show that, you know, when we talk about men and sexual assault, we how do I put this? We never really give the time and dedication to men as we should. And that just goes back to this whole thing of toxic masculinity. And I think men don't just play a part in toxic masculinity, but I think all of society does. Because when you talk about men and sexual assault, well, why couldn't he fight her off? You're big enough to fight off a girl. Why couldn't you do that? What, what do you know all the factors that played into that situation? No, you don't. Um, and I think that just goes to show that we put so much emphasis on what it means to be masculine, what it means to have for a man to have masculinity, that we don't actually acknowledge that men are also victims of sexual abuse. They are also victims of sexual trauma, sexual assault. And when we don't acknowledge that, we therefore play a part in toxic masculinity and how toxic masculinity is displayed. Um, so I think that we have to do our due diligence as well and recognize that men have men are victims of sexual assault they go through the same emotions just as a woman would um and I think you also made mentions of this that they also have that they also have additional challenges that come with reporting that sexual assault because well why couldn't you fight her off 
you're supposed to be a man. Like, you get what I'm saying? So um, very thankful and glad that you brought that up. And then I also want to say thank you, Chelsea, that men also feel a lot of shame because, unfortunately, something that's always said, well, I'm sure that you liked it. I'm sure that you wanted it because men are kind of over-sexualized in our society that no one could ever imagine a man being forced to have sex, which is just ridiculous. Another point I want to make as well, kind of going back to our basic definition of force, um, you guys like mentioned a lot the idea of like, oh, they weren't strong enough to fight off the perpetrator. Like, how could you not fight off a girl? Remember that force, it's not just physical. There's emotional coercion. There's threats. There's all kinds of tactics that can be used to force a victim into having sex. It's not just a matter of why didn't you fight her off if you didn't want it. There's so many other things, like Chelsea said, that come into play. It's not just physical. There's other ways. You know, and I'm so glad that you brought up coercion because I hate when I hear people say, well, they said yes, eventually. If somebody says yes, reluctantly, after you done begged them 500,000 times, that's not a real yes. Unless you hear yes, eagerly come out of my mouth, go the other way. Please and thank you. And that goes for man, woman, whoever. Like, unless you hear yes from that partner and it's not because you coerced them 500,000 times. Unless you hear yes from that person, move on. Take the L and move on. Like, it's not going to happen. Um, I just think people don't understand that coercion is a part of sexual assault. Um, and I think that's something that really needs to be talked about. So I'm glad you brought that up. And then just to go off what Chelsea was saying about coercion, I want to talk a little bit about how Lots of times people don't under or people don't know that their boyfriends or girlfriends actually can rape them. That was something that was trending a little while back on Twitter. But even if you're dating this person and you have had consensual sex with them before, say you don't feel like it now and they're begging you or he forced you, that is still rape. That is still sexual assault. So even if you did have consensual sex or even if you said yes, but you wanted to stop and they did not stop, that is still rape. Thank you for bringing that up because it was also on Twitter. People were like, if you're married, I don't understand how that's rape. If my husband said no, then no, it's not happening tonight. If somebody's wife says no, no, it's not happening. Like it's still rape, whether you have a consensual agreement with the government and whoever you believe in or not, like it's still no at the end of the day. Um, so yeah, that's really weird. Um, yes, we have may have had consensual sex before, but if I say, nah, babe, it's not happening tonight, then nah, babe, it's not happening tonight. Move the heck over and go to sleep. Like, <laughs> I don't understand people's, I don't understand what's not clicking about that. So now we're going to move on to the next topic and we're going to talk a little bit about assault in the LGBTQ plus community. So according to human rights campaign, hrc.org, as a community, LGBTQ people face higher rates of poverty, stigma, and marginalization, which puts us at a greater risk for sexual assault. We also face higher rates of hate-motivated violence, which can often take the form of sexual assault. Moreover, the ways in which society both hypersexualizes LGBTQ people and stigmatizes our relationships can lead to intimate partner violence that stems from internalized homophobia and shame. And the CDC's National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey um, found that for LGBT people, 44% of lesbians and 61% of bisexual women 
experienced rape, physical violence, or stalking by an intimate partner um, compared to the 35% of straight women. And 46% of bisexual women have been raped compared to 17% of straight women and 13% of lesbian. And um, kind of to add another statistic to that, 40% of gay men and 47% of bisexual men have experienced sexual violence other than rape compared to 21% of straight men. So those are just kind of some statistics that kind of show the discrepancy of, yes, it's a problem for all genders and for all um, sexual orientations, but in this community, there's a higher prevalence, which um, like Janae said, it's because of um, a, a variety of factors, but one of them being internalized homophobia and shame. And another, I guess another group of people that um, are stigmatized are the people that we see in detention centers as well. So in case you didn't know, there is abuse happening at the detention centers that we see along the border. And in an article about violence against women um, and girls in ICE custody on the Global Rights for Women website, immigration law attorney Laura Wilson writes that in the past two years alone, we've heard multiple reports of systematic sexual abuse um, of Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, detainees. And in February 2019, multiple national media outlets reported that over 4,500 children had reported sexual abuse in ICE detention centers um, and immigrant youth shelters since 2015. And while most of the complaints were about abuse by other detainees, 178 of the complaints were against staff at the shelters, and in particular, it was the youth care workers who escort the children everywhere they go. I'm sorry, I get really irritated when when hearing about children because y'all know I'm an education major. I'm an education major, so when we talk about the babies, I get I get emotional. That is just it's incredibly sick. It's really really sick, um, and it also just goes to show that our government really has a lack of empathy, of um, emotional morality um, when it comes to children. I mean, rape in any, for anyone, man, woman, whoever, at any age is just deplorable. Let me just put that out there. But when you physically harm a child, an innocent child, and you do nothing about it, that's a different type of low. That's the, and that's where I'm just gonna leave it. <laughs> I definitely agree that it's deplorable. That's a hundred percent. It's deplorable. But I also kind of want to talk about these numbers. Like four thousand five hundred children reported sexual abuse. Like that number is way too high. And if anything, that indicates that nothing's being done, or what they are doing is, part of my French, half-assed. Because it, it, if it gets to that high of a number, what are you doing? How does it get that high? And 178 complaints were from staff. What kind of a, a background check are you doing on these people? Do you even care who you hire? Um, what, what kind of mindset are these people who are literally with these children all the time? Like the um, article said, escort the children everywhere they go. How do you find these people? Why is that so high? I mean, obviously, they're seeing that there is no repercussions to these actions. If the number is that high, there is no action being taken to prevent this. And I think that's what 
angers me the most about this. Like, if you see a case show up, you do something about it. You don't let it escalate to the rate where there's almost 180 complaints against staff and 4,500 children are victims of abuse in youth shelters that are supposed to supposedly hold these kids shelter until they can be reunited with their families. It's not supposed to be as traumatic. It's already a traumatic experience to begin with, separating children from their families. But on top of that, they have to live with that fear that they may be abused by the people around them, by the people that are supposedly there to help them. Now I'm going to speak a little bit about violence against women in Latin America. So countries in Latin America and the Caribbean already have high levels of violence and femicide to begin with the coronavirus pandemic, and those cases have increased drastically. According to the newhumanitarian.org, in Central America, high levels of gender-based violence have been a major driver of migration towards the United States for years. But since the start of the pandemic, countries such as El Salvador have seen at least a 70% rise in reports of such violence. And in general, there has been an increase in sexual and domestic violence as a result of the pandemic. According to an article from Harvard Medical School, evidence shows that rates of sexual violence increased during states of emergency, including natural disasters, active conflict, and health crisis. For example, reports indicate that sexual assault increased by 45% during Hurricane Katrina and the recovery period. The stress, fear, and sense of helplessness associated with emergencies tend to increase risk factors for perpetration of violence against women. The 2005 report of the World Health Organization, WHO, tells us that there is a pattern of gender differentiation at all levels of the disaster process, exposure to risk, risk perception, response, physical impact, psychological impact, recovery, and reconstruction. I think it's important that we address this topic because even though we were kind of seeing the transition to kind of getting back to normal life and getting away from the pandemic, It's important to acknowledge that during this pandemic, people having to be sent home, um, people stuck at home with partners that are potentially abusive. Um, Because like we mentioned earlier, just because you're in a committed relationship and you've consented to having relations with someone before doesn't mean that doesn't mean you automatically get a free pass card for consent for the rest of your relationship. I don't think that people really have taken the time to understand that because of the pandemic, there are people stuck at home with their abusers. And as a result of that, we've seen these increases in sexual violence. Um, And then like that article that you quoted from Harvard Medical School said, um, there's that stress, that fear, the sense of helplessness, and that leads to the increased risk factors of the perpetration of violence. Um, so while we've talked about, you know, sexual assault, um, sexual abuse and all and violence, um, I do want to talk about rape culture and victim blaming because I think that's something that's really, really important. Um, so what is rape culture? It's an environment in which rape is prevalent and in which sexual violence is normalized and excused in the media and by pop culture. Um, so examples of this would be boys will be boys when we're, you know, rationalizing, um, or rationalizing sexual assault um, or even sexual harassment or sexual abuse. Um, Another one would be when people are talking to, when women reported, women or men reported, but most of the time this is women with with the saying that I'm about to say, um, when women report sexual assault, uh, sorry, when women report sexual assault, one of the main questions is, well, what were you wearing? How were you acting? Were you drunk? One of the biggest things we see in rape culture as 
college going young adults um, is sexual assault on campuses. Um, and one of the things that I've noticed, you, you know, just um, being a college student for almost four years now is that most of the time sexual assault is not taken seriously within college campuses. Um, people will report it and then that's the end all be all of it. Um, there's not much that's being said about it to let people know you know, to let people know and acknowledge that this, in fact, is a problem on our campuses. Yeah, when it comes to, like, sexual assault on campuses, I definitely agree with what you're saying as it doesn't seem like it's taken seriously. Um, So, for example, IUPUI, when something like that occurs, they'll send out a report. We all get it on our email saying that a sexual assault or um, something occurred on campus and they give you some details about it and then they give you some information about Um, just some general information about it and that's all you receive Um, but I feel like they never really address it Um, the way I kind of think about it is yes you're letting us know this is something that occurred and you're taking accountability in some way for that by doing so but at the same time the way that makes me feel as a woman who walks around on this campus I feel that if that were to happen to me, I'm just going to be another notification on the phones of the people around me. I feel like there is no justice for me. There is no change. I don't feel like any, I wouldn't feel like anything's being done. I'd, I feel like if that were to occur to me and the only thing I get out of it is a mass email sent out to the entire school with some information about sexual assault, I'd feel like a statistic and I wouldn't feel like my experiences were valued. And just since we're talking about IUPUI, I just do wonder exactly what they do to prevent these cases on campus. Because honestly, every year is just so tiring the amount of emails that I get about either fondling or a rape or sexual assault that happened and it's just it's really scary because you know obviously I stay on campus so it just really you know freaks me out when I you know hear that at the building over someone was raped or in tower there was an incident for a while that someone kept fondling people and then running away like why did that go on for so long like there were so many reports about that and apparently that person wasn't even a student so I don't know how they kept coming to campus without getting caught and fondling people but I guess that's a story for another time but basically what I'm trying to say is I just would like to see more from IUPUI taking these cases more seriously yeah and in general I think that whole idea of not taking things seriously leads into our next topic which is reporting sexual assault so if you feel that if this happened to you and you don't feel like if you report it anything is going to be done what motivation would you have to relive that trauma and report that yes you want justice for what occurred to you but at the same time there are feelings of uh, you're still coping with that and on top of that to have to report that in an investigation and having to do a rape kit and all that it's a it's a traumatic experience in of itself um and again as i said usually the victim is still coping with what has happened to them and that you know when it comes to sexual assault there's always these feelings of fear there's these feelings of shame of inadequacy of 
um, kind of like what you were saying, Chelsea, earlier, there's a lot of victim blaming. There's a lot of, was it my fault? There's a lot of guilt where victims will blame themselves because of the society we live in that perpetuates that environment for them where if someone is assaulted, they might think to themselves, what did I do? Why, why did I deserve this? Was it my fault? Um, and first of all, I want to say, no, it was not your fault. It's definitely not. Don't blame yourself for whatever happens to you. But at the same time, continuing, um, it just makes it hard to report that when you don't feel like you'll be taken seriously or you don't feel like what you're feeling will be, others will see it as valid. Uh-huh. Um, I absolutely agree. And I just wanted to point out that, you know, when dealing with law enforcement, a lot of people will say, well, why don't you report it? Dealing with law enforcement and being a sexual assault victim um, it's not always the easiest, as some people say. And I always say, unless you have, I always say about any experience, unless you have been in that situation firsthand, you will never know what it feels like. Um, and I can say this speaking as someone who has been sexually assaulted. Um, nobody, unless you have also been sexually assaulted, knows what that feeling is like. You go through so many emotions as a person, just like, was this my fault? Maybe, okay, maybe I was being too flirtatious or maybe I was being too friendly or maybe I was doing this or, you know, maybe I could have wore something different. You go through so many emotions before you really get up the courage to go to law enforcement. And then even when going with law enforcement, some officers treat victims of sexual assault with skepticism um, and therefore it dismisses their experiences and makes them feel unsafe. Like one of the biggest things I remember the first time I had told someone that I was sexually assaulted, the first question they asked me was, okay, well, what were you wearing? Now, mind you, I also identify as Pentecost apostolic. One of the biggest things that people know us for is wearing long skirts. And the reason why I say this is because it goes into what I'm about to say. When they asked me that, it kind of threw me for a loop because it was just like, you serious? Like I'm sharing something so vulnerable with you. And that's the first question you asked me. Mind you, this was back when I was wearing skirts to my ankles and turtlenecks. Okay. This was back then when I was, when that happened to me, this was back when I was wearing long skirts to my ankle. But I say all that to say they were raping women in the 17th century when they were still wearing corsets and dresses all the way down to their knees. They were raping women in the sixties when, when they were wearing poodle skirts. So it doesn't matter what a woman is wearing. That gives you no right to do anything that you want with her. And I think um, one of the biggest things that I hated about elementary and high school was this dress code thing. Because, oh, if a girl wears this, it's distracting to her class. My shoulders being out, my kneecaps being out should not be distracting. Instead of teaching women that they should cover themselves up more so they don't attract that kind of attention, maybe we should start teaching other people to keep their hands to themselves and their thoughts to themselves and in their head and not coming out of their mouths. I hate this idea that, and I, I'm talking about women because this is often targeted at, dress code has often been targeted at girls. I hate this idea that we dress code people and in a way censor, censor them because it's distracting. Why are you distracted by my shoulders? What about my shoulders turns you on? That's weird. That's weird. What about my kneecaps makes you hot and bothered? That's weird. I'm sorry. That's weird to me. But, um, yeah, I just wanted to share that, that I'm glad we, we are talking about victim blaming because that's definitely something that we need to acknowledge. That's one of the biggest reasons why men and women alike do not report sexual assault because it's always, were you drunk? What were you wearing? It doesn't matter. Keep your hands to yourself.
Keep your thoughts to yourself. Keep your opinions, your unwanted opinions to yourself. So when we, cause when we talk about sexual assault, we often talk, we also have to talk about sexual harassment and people just making unwarranted and nasty and disgusting comments. Like keep that to yourself. I don't want it. So yeah, I'm glad. I'm very, very glad we mentioned this and I'm very glad we talked about it. Cause it's something that definitely needs to be acknowledged. I agree. And and while we're on the topic, I definitely recommend, if you haven't already, there is a mini-series on Netflix called Unbelievable, and it's based on the true story of Marie Adler, a then 18-year-old Washington State woman who reported being raped by a masked intruder in her home, only to be re-victimized by detectives who accused her of fabricating her story. And in a quote from The Real Marie, she says that, I'm still in shock that they didn't believe me. I was mad too. I did pound my hand on the table and stuff like that. And the only way they would leave me alone is if I wrote a statement saying that it didn't happen. And Marie's assailant later went on to become a serial rapist and detectives investigating the other cases caught him and discovered that Marie had been his first victim. So if those officers, instead of, if those detectives, instead of grilling her to the point where she wanted to get it over with, where she felt like her feelings weren't being validated, where she started questioning her own experiences. If they hadn't done that, that person wouldn't have gone on to rape about 10 other women if they would have taken her seriously. But that's just one case. It's a it's a mini series. It's on Netflix. I definitely recommend it. I cried several times, but I definitely recommend it. It's really insightful, and it really shows how just the way people approach a situation of sexual assault can have such an impact on the victim because this is someone who was she had a rough life and then on top of that this happened to her and her feelings weren't validated and she ended up having to pay an actual fine for false reporting when in reality this all happened to her but they didn't believe her to the point where she was like I don't want to deal with this anymore I'm gonna just say it didn't happen take the consequences she was outcasted by her friends she was almost she was a foster child so she was almost kicked out of where she was living and she went through so much she was stigmatized by her entire town just because two detectives didn't believe her um so definitely check that out if you haven't already it's definitely an interesting watch um one of the last points I want to hit on before we kind of wrap everything up is um how do we how do we stop this And one of the biggest things that I feel like, especially for our generation, is accountability. And it may not just be within ourselves, but holding other people accountable, especially people that we call our friends. I saw so much on Twitter last year. I think with just with the pandemic and quarantine, people just had a lot of time to talk on social media. Um, But I saw so much on Twitter last year that people knew of their of their friends committing sexual assault and just wasn't holding their homies accountable. And it's just like you do realize that that makes you just as bad as that person who committed the sexual assault. Right. And that's how we, that's how we stop this is we start holding one another accountable. We start holding our friends accountable. We start reporting people who are committing sexual assault, whether they are our friends and family. One of the biggest things that I hated growing up, and this might just be a cultural thing. So I I don't know if any of y'all can speak to this is I hated that saying what goes on this in this house stays in this house. And that's one of the things that I made a promise to myself that if God ever blesses me with children, that I'm not teaching my child that because if something that's going on in this house or in this family or in this community is hurting you, we're going to talk about it. Um, And I think that's one of the biggest things that I wish I had growing up is that teaching that, nah, babe, we're going to talk about it. If it's in the family and it happened, we're going to talk about it. If it was somebody down the street in this neighborhood, we're going to talk about it. If there's somebody in this community that we 
are around, we're going to talk about it. Um, and I think that idea of not holding our people accountable because we don't want our business out there, it hurts us in the long run, long run, which is why you see so many people in therapy because of sexual trauma, because of sexual abuse that has happened within their own community, within their own family. And it's something that we definitely just, we need to talk about. Accountability is such a big thing. If we're going to stop this cycle of sexual abuse and sexual trauma, it starts with holding one another accountable for our actions. No, and I definitely agree. Accountability, like you said, it's about it's about calling people out when they do wrong. Like they may be your friends, but if they did something like that and you know about it, like you said, you are just as guilty. Um, being a bystander is no better than being the actual perpetrator. Um, and if you know something, you should report it. Um, and I think kind of backtracking a little bit, um, when it comes to reporting sexual assault, I just want to say, if you are a victim of sexual assault, you shouldn't feel pressure to report it. That is 100% personal. It is really up to you whether or not you want to make that decision. So yes, we're talking about reporting sexual assault, and we're talking about how um, there's these feelings of shame and coping and fear and all that stuff. But if you just don't feel comfortable reporting for all these reasons, it is perfectly okay. Like, yes, we encourage you to because I feel like this is something that people need to be made aware of, that that this is something that is happening. But if you are not emotionally prepared to be grilled about your experiences, it is completely valid for you to handle this confidentially. But that being said, do you guys have any final thoughts? To those who are victims of sexual assault, men and women alike, your story is your story. Um, you choose to share it when it's when you feel like it's your time to share it. Um, kind of speaking of what Deborah said, never feel pressured to tell your story because somebody because society is going to tell you what well, you told it too late. Um, you tell your story when you feel like it's ready. You process all of those emotions that go into that um, and realize that it is never, ever, ever your fault. Um, and also to friends and family, we got to start holding each other accountable. We do. Um, before we go, I do want to share some uh, resources that are available if you are um, a victim of sexual assault. So first and foremost, there is the Counseling and Psychological Services right here at IUPUI, which provides professional psychological services to IUPUI students at a minimal cost. And as we mentioned at the very, very beginning of this episode, April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. So CABS has actually partnered with the Cultural Arts Gallery for the Clothesline exhibit for April 2021. And this installation transforms a clothesline into a forum for conversation around sexual assault through asking its participants to write about their experiences with sexual violence on cards that hang from the clothesline. So I actually went in and checked it out just this morning. It was definitely a very powerful exhibit. Um, and it was it was really emotional to read the different um, cards that were on there. So if you have a story and you want to share it anonymously, um, that is something that you can do if you're interested in learning more about the different experiences people have with this. That is also something um, you could check out. Um, moving on in other resources is Centers of Hope. Centers of Hope provide private, individual, compassionate, and supportive care for survivors of sexual and domestic violence. 
The staff are especially trained to provide medical care, collect forensic evidence, and to provide crisis support and follow-up care. And they're located in the emergency room. There's one at the Eskenazi Health, that's the one near Ball Hall, and then the IU Health Methodist Center also has a center of hope. Um, additionally, at the beginning of the episode, we mentioned RAIN. RAIN actually has an app, and through that app, you can talk to a confidential advocate um, and just kind of talk through any emotions um, and the situation you're going through. So RAIN is also a really good um, resource that's out there for everyone. That being said, we're going to go ahead and end this episode here. Before we go, just want to reiterate that if you are a victim of sexual assault, sexual violence, domestic violence, it is not your fault. And stay safe out there.